You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So this was a fun conversation. I'm talking to Tara Schuster, who is an author, playwright, and accomplished entertainment executive. She actually served as vice president of talent and development of Comedy Central, where she was the executive in charge of a bunch of shows featuring Second City alums, including the Emmy and Peabody award-winning Key and Peele with Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele, and Detroiters with Tim Robinson and Sam Richardson. Um, she is the author of two books that we talk about, Buy Yourself the Effing Lilies and Glow in the Effing Dark. Um, I think you're going to enjoy this show. Trigger warning, uh, we do talk about suicide and mental health and a lot of her struggles and, you know, all our struggles. Enjoy the pod. It's a good one. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Schuster, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So the first question on this podcast usually attempts to set the table for one of two things. It's either the origin story that is the reason we're talking to uh, today. In your case, that could take up the entire podcast. <laughs> um, or a central truth that I think I gleaned from reading your work. And having read both your books, I can't help but go back to a phrase that came to me after a couple decades of working at the helm of the second city. And that phrase is nobody got into comedy because they're well-adjusted. <laughs> does this, yes. does that say anything or speak to you in any way? Yeah, it definitely rings true. Um, particularly around, you know, so much of comedy is telling stories that are like a little more extreme, but contain a universal truth that everyone yeah. can relate to. And so those of us who have had um, experiences at the extremities, I think, are the ones who can tell those stories um, the best. But I also want to say 
that I don't think that the um, archetype of the suffering artist who's just struggling and everything's hard. I really reject that. And I don't think you need to be depressed or drink or have a million issues in order to be funny. I just think, yeah, perhaps some of us have um, more detailed stories to tell. So I have two responses to that. Uh, one is, as I've gotten older, I realized, well, that's a funny little quip for me to say to some sort of person writing a story about Second City. As I've gotten older, I don't think anyone exists in this world who is necessarily well-adjusted. That's, yeah. I think. But even, uh, I remember Mark Marin came here to do a talk. I think he had a book or something out. And he said, you know, because the, the pictures at Second City, when you come in, come in are chronological. And so mm. you're looking at the black and white ones, and you're like, oh, and he, Mark in particular was like, uh, Belushi died for his art, and, you know, Farley died for his art. And then he's looking at the picture, he's like, ah, oh, Stephen Colbert, kind of got his together. Uh, <laughs> Steve Carell, he's got his stuff together. Tina Fey, yeah, Amy Poehler. And, there, <laughs> and he had this epiphany at that moment of like, no, oh, wow. it's, not, it's not about burning yourself out, which was very much... Yeah, I mean, starting here in the late 80s and, you know, and then producing in the early 90s and through the 2000s, that was very prevalent until that generation came in where it was like, no, Tina doesn't drink (laughs) pot. And she's very, very funny. Yeah, I definitely it's important to me to talk to other writers about, yeah, you don't have to be messed up to be good at your craft. In fact, you know, those old things of like Hemingway drank and, you know, that's how he got to his glory. I'm like, Hemingway also committed suicide. Like, I'm not trying to do that. Uh, I'm just trying to lead a healthy life simply because it makes me happier. And actually, I think it makes the writing crisper and clearer um, when I'm not so dissociated from my mood that I can't even tell like, what's true and what's not true. I want, I'm like more in control. That's right. So I want to focus mostly on your new book, but I think it's worth a little bit of time to focus on your first book. And I love how you open that book, which adheres to a narrative rule that we teach at second city, which is start in the middle. So Mm. it's the day after your 25th birthday and you wake up at 3 PM still in your fancy clothes from the night before. And you have a series of messages waiting for you. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, it was not a fancy outfit. It was straight from Forever 21. And it was so synthetic that I could have burst into flames at any moment. Not good. Um, But I woke up on top of my bed, fully clothed, and I start listening to these voicemails from my therapist. And I realized that the night before she was calling me to find out where I was because I had drunk dialed her and threatened to take my life. And she was so freaked out. And she was like a very calm European woman who Mm -hmm. mostly in sessions always had um, like a little mug with the tea bag and the the little string coming about it and a a kerchief around her neck. She was freaked out. And so to hear how scared she was in the messages really scared me into realizing I didn't have parents growing up really. I didn't have parents who nurtured me. They, they were incapable of taking care of children. This had led me to have severe anxiety and depression. And if I didn't do something to save my life, I wouldn't have much of a life to live. So that's where my first book begins. And then the new book (laughs) with you careening down Highway 40 in the Mojave Desert screaming, what is happening to me? So, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a journey, right? Yeah. 
absolutely. Yeah. No. Sorry, what were you say? Yeah. No. I was thinking about this because you know I read the books back to back, and and I don't often do that in terms of I mean, and, and and actually your publicist was great about that because she knows I read all the books. She's like read both. Um, oh, awesome. And it was interesting. And what I sort of enjoyed about both those is, you know, the, the first book, yeah, things are a mess, but you're coming to terms with them and you're dealing with it. And you're, and you're, while not necessarily getting closure, you're getting close to some sort of, you know, and we all have, we all have this in, in some degree, which is why I think people respond to your work. Um, but in particular, you have that really lovely ability to, you, you write very well, but you also, Thanks. um, you know, you're a sympathetic, you're a sympathetic mess in regard to this. And with the second book, what I enjoyed about it is you really journey a little farther into, okay, what is my trauma? What's the name for it? Um, and how does this tie up with maybe some reading I'm doing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or, or philosophy? And it and like, you're sort of revealing yourself to maybe uh, be capable of going a, a lot deeper into to this, which then I think makes you an empathetic character for others to look at and be like, look, like she kind of got it together and she had a lot of stuff <laughs> against her. Yeah. Um, but, but then, but, but also it's not like you're asking for that. It just sort of is there. That's nice to know. That's nice to know from the reader perspective. Mm-hmm. I'll take that empathy. Yeah. And you take have a, whatever I can get. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you have a line in the book that I really like early on, which is quote, if you're not dealing with the thing, you know, you need to deal with it's dealing with you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the second book really is, as you said, it's diving deeper. So the first book is basically, I figure out all these rituals to reparent myself, to get me to stability, to a enjoyable life where I'm not walking around the streets thinking I'm worthless. Nobody loves me. I'm ugly 24 seven times seven days a week. Mm. And I really got there. I got to a happy-ish, like, you know, stable, which stable was really like the key to all this um, person I liked. And like the moment I did that, I realized, oh my God, my life up until now has been a reaction to trauma. I've just been playing emotional whack-a-mole and filling in the gaps for all these things that happened. Who am I? Who is essential me? Who who would I be if somebody else wasn't defining me, if my trauma wasn't defining me? And it was actually getting um, laid off from Comedy Central that sort of set that journey into motion. You know, if I had stayed it, if I had never been laid off, um, I don't know that this book would have happened because I had used that job as a magic trick, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, like look at me, I'm working with um, Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele and David Spade. And I'm like glamorous. And I went to the Emmys, you know, look over here. Don't look over here at this quarter century of complex trauma that's like keeping you up at night. It, it was such a, a the duality there. And once I lost my identity as, I mean, just for example, people would introduce me like Tara Schuster, Comedy Central, like it was my married last name, right. you know? I worked there a third of my life. Right. So I I just had no sense of self. And that's why I went on this journey was because I lost it when I lost that job. You know, mm-hmm. the, the thing that I thought redeemed my childhood, when that was taken away from me, I I did not know who I was. 
Uh, so you and I have both gone through trauma therapy. So I thought that th- this could be kind of interesting. And I remember very much starting with sort of breathing ex- exercises, yeah. but, then we, but then we ventured into EMDR. Oh, um, nice. Which was amazing. Yeah. And, and it's the and real deal. It's the real deal. And as I've talked to different people, it's amazing how many people have gone through that who then recognize, you know, and I think this, this, and I'm still on this journey, but what's been fascinating your your book landed uh, within. Um, I, it's not like I plot the order of these things, uh, you know. And I don't normally go after the folks for for the podcast because the publicists all know me and send me stuff. So my last one was a uh, former economist uh, who now deals in um, healing and and mm. mostly family trauma, but not necessarily immediate family trauma. Family trauma from like four or five generations back. Yeah. And, right. And she, she was amazing. And it was, it was, you know, but a lot of these, these folks end up and and I'm reading a book by Sarah Rose Kavanaugh. Actually, you'd love this. Mm. Uh, it's uh, she's an educator and she's dealing with mental health for kids, basically mm-hmm. like 16 to 24. Wow. And, but a lot of it, and it's called mind over monsters because of all the monster mythology uh, has mm. to do with things that are wrong with the body. Mm, and so mm-hmm. this, this, and, and that was a thing that I just never mind body. Sure. I actually understood the words and the ideas, but until you do something like EMDR, where you really are trying to sync up what's going on in here, that's informing up here. And I'm touching my body and pointing to my head. Um, and it feels like you also had like you have body stuff that you had to deal with, but all of that is of a, of a piece and of a thing. Yeah. You know, one thing I really hope to do with this book is something like EMDR, um, which is, I forget, and I always forget what it, it stands for, but for for someone who's never done it, it sounds like magic slash snake oil salesman, charlatan, step into my tent, like of healing. Sounds completely fake because basically they use bilateral stimulation, which means you'd either, for me, I would move my eyes from side to side to the sound of a metronome and a therapist would guide me on a journey to heal the actual trauma, which is completely different from insight-based Uh, therapy. Like if you've had talk therapy, you know, you're talking about it, you're looking for patterns, but why I really wanted to get EMDR out there more is because it's just to me, a way more effective way to deal with trauma and recognizing that there are different kinds of therapies that if talk therapy is not working for you, you might try EMDR. You might try this other thing called internal family systems. Mm-hmm. And in my book, I just try to break it down because these things sound insane. They sound and they they sound fake, but actually EMDR is recommended by like the Department of Defense for and very scientifically yeah, sound. It yes. just sounds crazy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was realizing that I I didn't even need to know the story around things. I simply needed to heal the trauma and the trauma is not the event. It's how you respond to something, how something, something happens. And then Gabor Mate, who's, you know, kind of the father of trauma and tons of great books. He talks about it as it's what that event made you believe about yourself and how you acted, how you coped from then on. Because a lot of us have the coping mechanisms of our five-year-old selves. 
And my five-year-old self was awesome and glittery and loved to dress up. But like, I'm not looking to her for relationship advice. You know, like she should not be the driver of um, really any decision other than what should I wear tonight? So, you know, there are all these different things available and I really try to break it down and even give you tools that are free that you could, you don't have to have a lot of money to, um, to use. Yeah, I mean, Bessel van der Kork's work in Body Keeps the Score, which is like still on the bestseller list. And I was actually, when I got to the end of that book and he talks about work that he's done in improvisation, which kind of makes sense when that's embodied, it's embodied presence and you're you're with that with someone else. So I'm like, oh no, that that actually, you know, jives. Um, There are so many... Uh, terrible and hilarious stories. Uh, I'm going to, I would love you to relate. You went to Bryce Canyon on a, on a trip. Oh God. um, Yes. And, and this is what I relate this to, because I think it comes in the same chapter, which is like, you talk about like your house being built on an unstable foundation. And you don't just mean that metaphorically. No, no. I mean, it actual mudslide endangered. They had to build like I knew the word pylon when I was six because they all had to be uh, re like new pylons had to be put into the the the, the center of the earth. Um, the house was an open construction site for five years um, due to a a hasty remodel, which, you know, they tore open all the walls, the ceilings, and then realized, wait, we don't have any of the permits. And then just like kept it that way. So I grew up in a dangerous, um, Mm -hmm. actually dangerous um, house. And I don't remember why we're talking about that dangerous house. Well, and then, and then you, (laughs) you hooked up with in the pandemic with a guy named Charles, actually, like, I think online, right? And then, And he wanted to take you on this trip to Bryce Canyon. Yeah. Um, which then I think becomes kind of that trip also becomes a bit of a metaphor for the house and how that's yeah. into adult life. Yeah. Well, that whole chapter. So basically I had grown up in with a sense of no safety yeah. because the house wasn't safe. My parents were constantly fighting. And I mean, 10 out of 10 vicious fog of war there will be no survivors kind of fighting, screaming, telling me about financial insecurity. I didn't feel safe. And I didn't even realize that safety was a thing until I was um, at lunch in Zion. Actually, I was camping and I went to get takeout food and I overheard this father talking to his children about uh, canyoneering. And he said, you know, I've never been canyoneering before and it it might be scary, but I've hired an expert to keep you safe. So even when you're scared, you're going to be safe. And I was like, mind blown. Oh my God. Safety isn't, is a thing. You don't have to be 10 out of 10 scared. You don't have to jump when a, like a a trash can lid is put on. I, I was I hadn't even realized how jumpy I was. And so because I never valued my safety, I went basically with someone I did not know to Bryce Canyon. And immediately upon getting there, his brother, who was also there, took me on a a walk through the hoodoos, which are amazing. They're like giant totem poles made of sand, uh, naturally Mm -hmm. occurring. And we're going on this walk and, you know, just getting to know you. Hi, I'm Tara. And he says, you want to know something crazy? I'm like, sure. He's like, I had, I escaped a sex cult and there were things I did in Mexico that I really regret. 
And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Unsafe, unsafe, unsafe. Right. And then he continues, you want to know something crazier? I'm like, no, I really don't. And he he says, Charles, Charles was in it too. And Charles was the guy I was with and currently sharing a camper van with. And rather than figure out a way to get myself out of there, because Mm -hmm. it, it turned out to be Nexium, which... I knew enough at the time to know there was already a documentary out about it. And though I don't think, I don't know if he was exaggerating the sex called part. I don't know. But once people are talking about escaping sex cults, you probably don't want to be with them alone in Bryce Canyon. Instead of doing anything to help myself, I pounded some whiskey and then went on a run in the dark because I, running is like how I uh, get anxious feelings out of my body. So I was like, I know. Yeah, this is great self-care. Like the the booze is going to keep me warm and the running. I think there's, I'm just going to pause because there's really, can you hear that? Crazy sirens. Oh, nope. oh great. Um, so, I, so I just thought, you know, the booze is going to warm me up in the running. That's great self-care. Instead of finding a ranger um, walking out of the park, doing anything to protect myself. And one of the major lessons I learned is that we all need a sense of safety, it, particularly because the world is actually pretty unsafe. And so if you don't have some safety inside of you, you're just in a slingshot. You're, you are at the whim of all external conditions, which like, I don't know if, if anyone's read the news recently, but uh, it's a shit show out there. Yeah. So, you know, that was a big wake up call that I needed safety. So it's interesting because it, it pretty soon in, in, in tra- chapters following that, you you quote Annie Dillard, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And this becomes a sort of a turning point as you start start to realize, like, all right, everything is messed up. There is no changing the past. There is no changing the present. You know, all you can be in control of is your emotional response to these things. And there is the intellectual understanding of that, which probably came first. Right. Because then it's what, what becomes, and this is the, this is the, for myself, the, the magic trick I don't even understand about when I was able to, and this was only like in therapy, like three weeks ago was I'm like my feet, I don't know why my feet are on the ground and they feel solid. Mm, but right mm-hmm. now I'm not afraid. I'm yeah. not afraid and I feel solid. <laughs> and she's just like, my therapist is like, can we just take a moment and like be good with that? And yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it feels like you had that uh, a bit where it was like, yeah, this is all this stuff. This is, I need to let myself off the hook and I need to do and just do, do as best as I can. Yeah. It's funny. I'll, the self-healing journey, and I make a claim in the book that I can help you recover your soul, which is quite the claim to be making. Yeah. Um, and I do it because it really is possible with little teeny baby steps done. Like once you intellectually understand, okay, the trauma happened, I might not be to blame but now, no matter what, it actually is my responsibility. Sucks that it happened, and I have to own it one thousand percent and do everything I can to heal it. Um, once you understand that, you can 
there are so many tools you can use to employ to have a new reaction. You know, so what I'm not saying in this book that I talk a lot about anxiety um, and actually and much darker things, suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. my lifelong battle with depression. I am not saying that we can be fully cured and you'll never feel anxious again. What I'm saying is we can feel anxious, pause, dig into whatever that emotion is and choose a new reaction. So Mm -hmm. that we're not completely overwhelmed all the time. And that's what all of the tools in my book are meant to do is shortcuts to how do we train ourselves to have new reactions? Was the Bryce Canyon trip a kind could would that have been some level of exposure therapy for you? Um, I don't actually know what exposure therapy is. So exposure therapy is when you have got a particular kind of fear, the really one of the only ways to combat that fear is to ah. get close to it. And a lot of times it's simulated. So if you're afraid of spiders, it's like there's a spider in the other room. Yeah. And and so I wondered if in this sort of self-medicating world, it was sort of like, I'm going to go do this thing. No, I don't think so. No. I think it was just a reckless, uh, <laughs> I don't even know that I should be safe. Let's go. Uh, I, I do not give myself any credit for making that decision. It was right. one in a million of, of bad decisions. All right. Well, then let's point out something that I think is healthy that, that you, and you yeah. alluded to it earlier, which is, a, a company is not your family. You say, you say that in your book. And yeah. Like, I work at Second City. I've worked here 34 years. Like, and wow. I'm so identified, I, you know, Kelly Leonard, Second City, Second City, that, that is, but, you know, I certainly know after all, it's like, you know, it, it's been around 65 years. So it's going to go on after me. It went on before me. Yeah. And if I keep that, if, if that is what is responsible for my identity as a human being, it, yeah. like, it's just going to fall short. Yeah. It's, It's dangerous because once you identify as something other than what's inside of you, you are at the mercy of external circumstances. Mm -hmm. You you have given over all of your self-esteem, your confidence, how you relate to yourself to somebody else. Because, you know, Comedy Central, I started as an intern at The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I ended as vice president of talent development where I oversaw David Spade's show and um, Kean Peel and a bunch of other comedies I was obsessed with. And I, I had such strong relationships. I would go as far as to say I was beloved by my colleagues yeah. mm-hmm. and they laid me off so quickly <laughs> that like my head spun, you know, yeah. these places, they're businesses, Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's a business and the business, the goal of the business is to make money. And so unless your family is a hierarchical money-making machine to talk about where you work as if it is your family, in my experience, it was deeply problematic yeah. because I was looking for things that a family would give me uh, at work that just could never be so. And there've actually been a lot of studies. I'm citing Adam Grant here about mm-hmm. how pe- people who reveal too much or anything really personal actually suffer consequences. They are less likely to get promotions. They're less likely to get raises. And I know that it's super hip and in HR right now to be like, bring your most authentic self to work. You can, you can be whoever you are. 
No, like where is that true in an actual office? If you have that office, you are one of the very few. It is actually much more likely that the people there do not know how to cope with whatever you're coping with because that's not their job. They did not do the 6,000 hours of therapy training that a therapist in California would have to do. They're doing their best. And now how I see it is um, your colleagues, I think of more as like mission control, like we're going on a mission to Mars and everybody has to have really specific roles. Everyone relies on each other. But when you've got a mission to Mars, oh my God, that's the most important thing. You cannot get distracted by gossip. I mean, lives are on the line. Uh, you have to be really focused and and that's really much more how I see it. And yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how many people talk about work like a family. Yeah. Um, and I just now completely, I feel like I have found a much healthier way of of thinking about it. Yeah, I've 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 had that conversation with Adam, who's a friend. Um, in, oh, in, really? Yeah, in, oh, in cool. part because there's <clears throat> there's a good research around where we're talking about self disclosure about you sort of revealing yeah. information about yourself, which actually in very moderate doses is really useful with regards yeah. to I can talk to you about uh, the fact that I have a Bernese mountain dog and that might mean something like, and right. it does to people who are into dogs, you know, that is, and that's good. Like, you know, but then what people have to understand is like, as you sort of elevate that, it gets more complex and complicated because as you point out, like humans, not every human knows how to deal with this stuff, especially no. with the, the messy you know, no. and I do, you know, I'm like, I work at a theater. You can imagine what yeah, theater, different. comedy theater. Yeah, it's different. Um, but still <laughs> unhealthy boundaries and barriers all over the place. So how, how do we make that, that, that work well? And that takes a lot of patience, empathy, and people who are well-adjusted. Um, and that's just not like the population. No. And period. my best advice for this is I act like a professional, yeah. whatever situation I'm in, uh, let's say with my publisher right now, sometimes, you know, when you write two books about the worst moments of your life, there are going to be some tears. People are going to see these tears. And I don't, you know, uh, I don't uh, reprimand myself for sometimes having a total meltdown. And most of the time I try to act like, well, how would a professional, somebody who this is my job, I am so passionate about it, but I don't need everybody around me here to coddle me or make me feel good about me. And my self-esteem isn't coming from this. Um, because again, the moment you start fixing yourself to your job or an identity that somebody can take away from you, you're, you're in trouble. You're just set up for disaster. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one thing that just exists no matter what is your family and I, and, and you talk about your dad a lot and, you know, not, not a, not even close to a perfect relationship, but the one that you sort of like kept, Mm -hmm. I was not expecting in the second book to then have you, you stopped talking to him for like a while. Two years. Two years. Yeah. So talk about, because Look, you invested like so much in that <laughs> and it kind of paid off a little bit, but, but what was the thing? Okay. That this is the, the, I'm stopping and then tell a little bit about how you re-entered that mode of communication. Yeah. So for my whole life, so my parents split us up. I have a little sister and my sister oh my God, went with my mom. Worst, by the way, I can't. 
Yeah. I, I, I didn't like it either. And no. I went with my dad and there was never, ever like, how are the children going to see each other? And to see my sister, I'd have to barter with my mom who was super psychologically abusive. And it was, it was a total mess. And yeah. so my dad was really the only parent. He was the only adult. And he really didn't have the life skills to be present with me ever. Like if, if you were to ask my dad right now, what was your thought about Tara growing up? He would say, and he has said to me, I didn't know she was there. I, you know, I wasn't hugged. I wasn't told I'm you're proud, proud of you. I couldn't have needs. If I cried, I was told not to. And the cumulative effect was a part of the anxiety and depression, you know, do that like 1 million times. Um, and there are real results. And so right when COVID started, I just knew that I had to do some deeper work Mm -hmm. and that if my dad was in my life, I wouldn't be able to because he constantly triggered all these patterns, all these trauma responses that I was trying to heal. And I just told him, I said, I love you and I need to take a pause in this relationship because I need to heal myself. This is not, I don't hate you. In fact, I love you. And, and that was that. And so two years later, he got COVID Mm -hmm. and, you know, the moment I found out he had COVID, I was whatever, whatever differences we have, I'm going to go help him. And what I found out was shocking. It was that he had been in therapy for the previous two years, trying to answer the question, why is my daughter not speaking to me? Mm -hmm. And it was almost as if a completely new dad walked into my life to the extent that we called, now we call the old dad, dad one, and the new dad, dad two, Mm -hmm. because dad two apologizes for things, tells me he's proud of me, um, has tried to hug me. Mm. And it's, it's remarkable. And I, and I, you know, I write about it and I, I hesitated to write about it because what I don't want the message to be is if you draw a boundary, someone else will change. That's super rare that someone actually yeah, that's does. Not, that's not what no. you No, yeah. And, but what I am saying is my dad is 78 and has made unbelievable progress he has changed and is so much happier than he ever was. Mm. And, you know, for me, there's a lot of grief there, you know, grief that I, that he's old, you know, and I'm, I might not have much time with him, but there's so much gratitude because I never thought I would have someone who supported me. I never thought I'd have like a dad, like a real dad. Mm -hmm. And he's not perfect at it. In fact, we are in a quite a tiff right now over we 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 do family therapy together yeah it, it's a mess in this exact moment yeah. and the fact he's in therapy trying to work this stuff out with me and trying to be a better person there's so much to be grateful for um and that's been one of my big takeaways is that grief and gratitude go hand in hand right. and if you focus solely on the grief and the negative things in your life you're actually not seeing reality. You're, you are not seeing the big picture. And the only way to see reality is to hand in hand marry grief and gratitude. The terrible things, the beautiful things, the joy, the sorrow, they're all like one, essentially. Um, 
And it's helpful because that really uh, opens the aperture of your whole life. You know, it, it gives you perspective. There's no joy without suffering. I mean, the, this is yeah. this is the basis of Eastern traditions and yeah. indigenous traditions. EMDR, also indigenous, a lot, a lot of mm. taking from there. It's interesting. My wife and I often say we have a um, uh, a 25 year old son. We're like, there's no manual for parenting an adult child. So right. it, it's there are, and, and believe my right, my wife read every single book. Yeah, right. Um, every book. Um, and, and for both of our kids, that was something that was, you know, all right, we did the best we can. And now it's sort of like, okay, how are we managing this with Nick? And, and I don't know, jury's out. <laughs> we, we just text each other. He wants me to watch the last of us. He said the last episode was amazing. So, you know, yeah, we'll jump on that. Um, so the, yeah, and we talked about this before we started taping that the last question is about a yes. Mm-hmm. And, and I forgot that I had written down two of those things that you write about in your book that might be mm-hmm. a jumping off spot. And of course, oh, great. Jump it. but you, you asked this question of yourself, when did I feel the most yes in my life? Which I thought oh, was interesting. Yeah. And you talk about this. You haven't read the book, which you all, I love that you say that Scott shoot. Uh, there's a book called the full body. Yes. Change your work and your world from inside out. Yeah. Um, which, which I made a note of, cause I'm going to like get it. Um, but both of those things come sort of at the end and uh, you have a line to which I love, which is future me is the highest version of myself. Mm-hmm. That's great. I mean, that is so aspirational, but also like it just it 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 gives you that horizon that you yeah. are able to see. Yeah. And, and I think for a lot of people, I, I had a, a Sanford Greenberg who was uh, not born blind, but he became blind when he was in college. He's, he's quite old now, but he said one of the interesting thing, things about blind people is they don't see horizons. Uh, mm. and they, also, they also have to have incredible trust. Yeah, right. Totally. And he, said, and he said that in his life, maybe three people have betrayed that trust. I'm like, that seems pretty good. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for me, my yes and would be this whole turning from an uh executive to a writer is a yes and Mm -hmm. you know i was really scared to do it i thought it would be a career ender because nobody would ever hire me again as an executive because i had been so i'd shared so much and then the book wouldn't be successful enough for me to make it a career and i had to say like okay yes all those fears exist and this is how i feel most alive Mm -hmm. i I feel my absolute best when I am writing and and that's not when I'm selling books. It's yeah. when I'm in process. Mm-hmm. I feel 100. I feel like I'm connected to something much bigger than me, like an animating force of the universe. I also feel that when I'm running. Uh, those are the two instances where I have this full body. Yes. Um, and that that never has let me down that the, mm-hmm. the these fears that I had were ridiculous because Basically, after the first book came out, a headhunter tried to get me to take an executive job. And then the book has only led to a second book. Mm -hmm. So all these fears that were like holding me back, what I realized is, no, I need to trust myself and step more into like what the yes, like what makes me come alive? Yeah, because if you're really and this is why we say yes, and because it's it's more than just the yes. It's it's like what lay beyond and, yeah. and and I know this from when I wrote my book which like 
I did this. Like it was an amazing accomplishment. And it led to a whole bunch of like my whole life changed and my career changed. And I went from all improv on stage, just like that work, which you're very familiar with. And then I have just been working with academics and other people about improv off stage and how it can, you know, help people in their caregiving and help mm. people who are on the autism spectrum and mm. help retirees and all, all this work, which is like full of meaning and purpose, which is then you recognize is like, oh, that's the reason <laughs> I did the other work and what, what was meaningful for me. Again, like I just remember young Keegan mm. at Second City Detroit, this kid who just wanted to do this work and sitting down in the audience and being like, oh, he's got it. Like, yeah. I just, like, I knew, and he didn't even quite know it. And he comes to Chicago and then blows up, of course. Mm-hmm. And and he was here. He's part of artistic advisory board now. And he was oh, here cool. probably like two, three months ago. It's like him and Sam Richardson, Tim Meadows. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love them. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was all, all those guys. And they all came and saw the show. And they were just so happy in terms yeah. of, like, this was where they started. And yeah. they they're talking to the artists about, like, I remember Keegan went backstage. He's like, you recognize that you own what you do. Like it doesn't yeah. matter. None of this matters. What this is going on. What happened tonight is great. And you could just see them being like, oh, like, yeah. This. And so mm-hmm. I think that you are now in this place where you can give back. And I'm sure this is your audience, right? To young people who are going through the same sort of like, what am I going to do? Where, where am I going to oh, be? Yeah. So this is, and especially as a young woman, because there's not, you know, as many of those sort of models out there for sort of saying do this. So I don't know. I just think it's very powerful, and your writing's really Thank good. You. So like, yeah, Thank you. keep doing. Yeah, it. it's interesting because my um, readership is the ages are all over the map. It's mm-hmm. because it's timeless. We like if you're 78 and have not dealt with your trauma, you yeah. are the same as me at 25. There's mm-hmm. really not much of a difference, and so. What I ultimately hope I give people is a somewhat funny, relatable plan for emotional freedom. Because right. really, you can be liberated from a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It is not, and it's not like a stroke of genius or magic from God. It's like take some steps, make some habits, do it a bunch of times equals emotional freedom. And that's, that's the path I'm on. I've gotten a lot of it. I'm not at the end. I think if you're at the end, you're probably dead. Uh, but that's the journey I want to invite people to to take with me. Uh, the books are called Buy Yourself the Effing Lilies and Glow in the Effing Dark. Tara Schuster, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.